The title of this year is Conscience. We're talking about conscience. What is a conscience? Does, are there Jewish sources on a conscience? What is its application? What is its limitation? This is a little discussed subject, one that has considerable subtlety to it, and uh, I would say considerable surprising conclusions. Thank you so much. Sorry for the confusion. And uh, what I want to do is share with you some Torah sources on the subject on my website. There are quite a few more, but this will give you at least the flavor of the ideas. And then we will talk about some of the implications. First of all, the Gemara in Yuma, Samach Zayin Rebbeis, says what many people know, that mitzvot come in a variety of categories, one of which is mishpatim. And a mishpat is a mitzvah which, even if the Torah had not written it, we would know that it's right. Which indicates that at least some of the mitzvahs we could know are right, even if the Torah hadn't commanded them. The Rambam, in Hilchus Tshuva, says the following. This is the fifth parak, parak Hamishi of Hilchus Shuva. Rashus call Adon Nesunalo. Every man has the power. Im If he wants to incline himself to the good way, Vliyos Tzadik, and to be righteous, Rashus Biodo. He has the power. Rashus here means power. Im Rosha, if he wants to incline himself to the evil way and be wicked, the power is in his hands. Who should cause the Torah? This is what the Torah writes. Hain ha'odom hoya ka'achad mimenu ladas tovara. Now those words are usually translated. Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. That's the way they're usually translated. But the Rambam suggests a different translation. Kelomar, says the Rambam. That is to say, Hain, min ze adam. Behold, this species of man, Hoya echad ba'olam, is unique in the world. Ve'ein lo min sheni domelo, bezeh. There's no other species similar to him, bezeh in this, in this aspect. She yehehu, that he, from himself, with his knowledge and with his thought, knows good and evil. So the Ramam is translating the verse like this. Comma. Space. Behold, man has become unique. Ke'achad. Stop. Space. Mimenu ladas tovara. Knowing tovara from himself. That's the way Rama is taking the Pesach. And he says quite clearly. Shiyehum me'atzmo bedato v'machshavto yodeya hatovara. He, in his own mind, in his own knowledge, his own thought, knows good and evil. So he says at the end of the first parak of the Shemana Prokham as well. And interestingly, Oculus translates the verse in exactly the same way. Those academics who have prejudices, which is rife in academia, that the Rambam would be a Spanish philosopher and he would twist the verse to suit his philosophical purposes, which is absolute nonsense as much of academic Judaism is. Onkelis translates the verse in exactly the same way. 
Man has become unique in the world to know from himself good and evil. Oakless antedates the Ramam by over a thousand years. And he didn't have Spanish philosophical um, purposes in writing his commentary. The purpose is different. To say he's like one of us is a difficult thing to say. And that's what they wanted to avoid, that, that explanation. But the Rambam's position on knowing good and evil is quite explicit. As a fascinating Tosu Sarosh, those who know the sources, you see the tremendously wide variety of sources that we have here. Um, this is in Kedushin Yud Gimel Ahmed Beis. borrows money from B. Does he have to pay it back? Should he pay it back? Is there an obligation to pay it back? We have many laws formulated how Bezdin will collect it from him. But what about his responsibility to pay it back? All the Shonim and Achronim agree there is a responsibility and there's considerable discussion as to where the responsibility comes from. Considerable disagreement. The Rush takes, from our point of view, a radical view, he says, certain types of responsibilities that are written in the Torah qualify for the category Milva Haksuva Torah, a loan which is written in the Torah, and the Torah therefore requires it to be repaid. Like sacrifices, like tithes, like Ksuba uh, for Anisha. These are things which the Torah says you have to pay, and therefore of course you have to pay them. The Torah is explicitly telling you you have to pay them. Aval, halvo. But alone, even though there is a verse in the Torah that does describe what a creditor and a, and a debtor have as a relationship and what the rules are, even so, even though there's a verse that does describe it, it's not considered written in the Torah. Even though there is a verse, it's not considered written in the Torah. Why is that? If it's written in the Torah, why is it not considered written in the Torah? Because even if it hadn't been written, he would know that he has to pay it back. So the verse is not teaching me something new. It's not teaching me something new. Had the verse not written it, everybody knows he has to pay back loans that he borrowed. So therefore, when the verse writes it, it's only confirming what I know without the verse. That's not called Tzuvah Torah. It's an amazing position. It's written and it's considered not written because I don't need the verse to know it. Then a rush is saying, you know why you have to pay back what you borrowed? Because you borrowed it. And you know very well if you borrowed it, you owe to pay it back. Just because you borrowed it. You know that. Rav Nissen Gaon, in his introduction to his commentary on Shas, writes, the non-Jewish world we think of as obligated by the Sheva Mitzvah Spanei Noach, the seven categories of mitzvahs that were revealed to Noach and to apply to all of his descendants. But he says... Any mitzvah which is logical, they are bound by also. You don't need a revelation to tell you that you're bound by a mitzvah that's logical. Logic dictates it. And they're as bound by logic as anybody, as we are or anybody else. So, of course, any logical mitzvah has its own basis without God commanding it. Hashem Shkop, Nishari Yashar, Shar Hei Perik Beis, asks the following question. How are the ideas of theft and property related? Is it that God says, don't steal these items, and when God says, don't steal them, that makes them his property? They're his property because God says not to steal them. Or is it that property is independent, becomes your property because of your relationship to it, and then God says, don't steal other people's property? Is it the prohibition of theft creates the concept of property, or the concept of property is independent, and God says, don't steal other people's property? His answer may be a little surprising to you. He says the latter is the case. Property is independent, and after you have established that this is your property, God says, don't steal other people's property. And he proves it. 
Kedaka Bakodish, because he says, Lamadavadoma, what is this similar to? All the Rishonim write about gratitude as a reason for keeping mitzvahs. Why should I do what the Kosh Baruch Hu tells me to do? Because I owe him so much. Because he's given me so much. I owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. So when he tells me what he wants from me, my debt of gratitude implies that I have an obligation to do what he says. So he asks, and why is it that you have to pay your debts of gratitude? Why is that? Is that because it's a mitzvah? Then you have a circular argument. You're telling me gratitude is why you keep the mitzvahs and you paid your, and, you, and it's a mitzvah that tells you to pay your debts of gratitude. Can't go both ways. If gratitude is a reason for keeping mitzvahs, then the foundation of gratitude has to be independent of the mitzvahs. It's prior to the mitzvahs. It's a reason for keeping the mitzvahs. That means you have to know it on your own. On your own, you're aware somebody benefits you, you owe him something, and if he adds something in return, at least up to a certain limit, you owe it to him. This seems to indicate, no, I won't be so timid. This shows that we have the ability to know what is good and what is evil, at least on some level. Yes, I'm introducing a qualification, as you'll see shortly, the reason for it. We have an ability to know what is good and evil from within ourselves. We have this capability as part of our very nature. Of course, I'm inserting a footnote now, of course, our nature was given to us by God. He created us knowing this. He created us with the ability to appreciate these things. But indeed, that's the way he created us. He created us with the ability to know these things on our own. The comparison that I would make, which has more far-reaching implications than I'm going to talk about tonight, but I'm introducing it for this point, and you should keep it in mind in other discussions as well, the comparison I would make is the comparison to arithmetic. Everyone knows 7 plus 5 is 12. How do you know? You know, because when you think of 7, you think of 5, and you think of addition, it's just obvious that it comes out to be 12. Anyone with a sound mind can see. In fact, if someone thinks it's 11, you begin to doubt his sanity or his seriousness. Or It's one of those cases like we discussed in the last hour where the disagreement is not tolerable. God created us with the ability to know this. Anyone who goes through normal experience and learns the concept then knows that 7 plus 5 is 12. It's something we know independently because of the way we're created. Of course, everything that exists depends upon God for its existence. I call this genetic uh, uh, dependence. Everything genetically dependent upon God. But once He created it, it stands on its own. One doesn't need to back up his judgment that 7 plus 5 is 12 with a citation from a Mishnah or from a Pasuk in the Tanakh or from a, a, a law in the Shulchan Aruch. 7 plus 5 is 12 stands on its own. What these sources seem to be telling us is knowledge of the basis of good and evil that's another qualification, correct? The knowledge of the basis of good and evil is independent. We are created with the ability to know those things. Now, if this is true, I mean, it is true, but given that it's true, two questions arise. Number one, if we have an independent ability to determine what is good and what is evil, does Torah become irrelevant to determining what is good and what is evil? We have it on our own. Does the Torah have no role in teaching me? Or even, to some extent, legislating what is good and what is evil? That's one question. And second, even more radical question will be, if I have an independent ability to know what is good and what is evil, could I use it against the Torah? Could I make a judgment that what the Torah says is wrong? If it really is independent and it really is reliable, why is it inconceivable, is it inconceivable that using this God-given ability, I will come to the conclusion that something the Torah says or something God has said or something God has done is wrong. In order to answer these questions, what we need is a picture of how this independent moral judgment relates to the Torah and to a Kaddish Baruch to God in general. Once we have a picture of how that works, then I think we'll be able to answer these questions.
And here, the idea that I'm going to share with you, I, I'm indebted to John Stuart Mill, which was his idea in answer to a question which was a critique that was expressed against his utilitarianism. And I think that his solution to the problem was correct, and I think it works for us as well. I'll describe the solution in general. I'll give you examples, and then I'll go back and describe it in general again. This is very important to understand. My independent moral judgment teaches me that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Some of those moral principles apply. They apply to people. They apply to situations. In some cases, the principle applies to give moral authority to someone. When that person exercises that moral authority that he was given by the principles, then his judgment, his statement, his demand, his request becomes morally binding because he has the moral authority, because the principle gave it to him. And then, what's right or wrong, what's good or evil, may be, at least in part, determined by what he says, what he wants, what he asks, what he commands. Let me give you some examples. There's a moral principle of gratitude. We mentioned it now from Rav Shimon Shkrup, that it's one of the principles that underlies our obligation to keep mitzvot altogether. The principle of gratitude applies across the board. Anyone who has benefited me, I have a moral debt to that person. That includes my parents, that includes my teachers, that includes people who lend me money, it includes my neighbors who do favors for me from time to time. It includes my students who actually listen to my lectures and pay attention and ask good questions. Anyone who has benefited me creates in me a moral debt. Let me illustrate this the way philosophers do with an extreme example. Imagine I'm drowning and someone saves my life. Two weeks later, he says to me, I need to borrow $500. I have $500 to lend. Just $500. At the same moment that he asks me for a loan, a neighbor with whom I have a very casual acquaintance, we just nodding acquaintances, asks me for a loan of $500. I've only got $500 to lend. And I have two requests. What shall I do? And I say, I'll flip a coin. That's morally derelict. Because this fellow saved my life. I owe it to him. The two people aren't on a par that I should flip a coin. To ignore the fact that he saved my life is morally derelict. The, the fact that I received a benefit from, him, benefit from him creates an objective moral indebtedness so that if he needs something, he takes precedence over other people. Now again, gratitude applies across the board. It applies to parents. It applies to benefactors of all kinds. Included in that list is also a Kurdish world. Is also God. After all, what we receive from God, the benefits that we receive, are enormous. God is an ongoing source of life and intelligence and strength and energy and resources and environment. These are ongoing gifts, moment by moment. So our indebtedness to God is enormous. It doesn't wipe out the other debts. It doesn't wipe out the other debts. Gratitude applies across the board. It applies wherever it applies. But it applies in addition to God. Okay, now, back to the guy who saved my life. He calls me up and he says, I saved your life. You remember me? Let's see, I'm trying to remember. Who are you? Oh, yes, you saved my life. Right. Um, what can I do for you? He says, I need your help. Sunday afternoon, I have to paint my living room purple. Could you please help me? Come over and help me paint my living room purple. So I think, let's see, he saved my life and he wants a couple of hours painting his living room. Is his request within the limits of the debt? Do I owe him that much? Now, being an American, I might have real doubts here. You know, Don't tell me what to do. Don't push me around. I live my own life. But in a sober moment, if you can find an American in a sober moment, um, I would have to admit that saving my life does include two hours of help painting his living room. So... Helping to paint his living room purple becomes a moral obligation of mine because he said so. 
Now, don't make a mistake. Because he said so. Because he saved my life. Because there's a principle of gratitude. Trace it back to the beginning. Suppose he had said instead that he wants to paint the living room green. Could I say, ah, purple, yes, green, no. We just don't do green. The color makes absolutely no difference. He's choosing green. I owe him two hours of help. Suppose he asked for help balancing his checkbook or uh, mowing his lawn or whatever it is. What he chooses becomes morally obligatory because of my debt to him. He has a certain open-ended moral authority, a certain open-ended moral authority, non-specific moral authority, and whatever he will request becomes morally binding. Now, I should say, I shouldn't say whatever he'll request, there's a limit. Suppose he says, listen, I saved your life, right? So here's what I want. I want one favor from you. I want you to jump off the Empire State Building. (laughs) Excuse me, you know. But uh, the limits of, uh, the debt of having saved my life does not include requiring me to kill, to die, right? That's that's beyond the the, the debt of gratitude that I owe you. But anything within the debt of gratitude, he has the authority to decide how the debt shall be paid, unless there are other competing considerations, maybe that's for something immoral. But if it isn't immoral, whatever he asks for becomes morally obligatory because he has that open-ended moral authority. Another example. Um, The owner of an item has the authority to determine, in great measure, how the item shall be used. Again, it's not unlimited. You own a dog, so you can choose among the various nutritious dog foods, and you, if you choose to move to uh, Ireland, so then the dog has no choice but to go with you. You don't recognize, at least if you're not Peter Singer, you don't recognize that the dog has a right to stay where it is, and you're violating its rights, and so forth and so on. Um, and if you want to cut its hair close, as long as it doesn't injure the dog, you have a right to do that. You, as the owner, can determine to a very great extent what shall happen to the, to the item that you own, how it shall be used. You certainly have a right to restrict others' use of it because you're the owner of it. That means being the owner of it gives you an open-ended moral authority to determine many factors of its use. Now, what it takes to be the owner of an item is somewhat tricky and controversial, so I want to take a clear case, a case about which there's no discussion whatsoever. And if there are people who think that ownership is social, it's a social construct, ask me and I'll prove to you that it's not. I'll give you John Locke's proof. This is England after all. John, so John Locke should go down reasonably well. Um, let's take a case of creation ex nihilo. As I'm talking to you, um, I'm mentally preparing to create a papaya out of nothing. Watch. Bang! There it is! A papaya. The sum total mass energy of the universe went up by one papaya. I didn't even bother borrow mass or energy from anywhere. I just added it by the act of my own free creative will. Surely that's my papaya. You may have questions about international commerce and use of land and so forth and so on, but if I create it out of nothing, it's definitely mine. That's a clear case. Okay, God creates the universe out of nothing. He creates it out of nothing. Then it's his property. Now, leave out people. Whether you can own people or not is controversial. I don't want to step over any controversial philosophical lines tonight. So leave out people. But you can own land, so he owns the land. You can own uh, water, so he owns the water. You can own airspace, he owns the airspace. You can own vegetation, he owns the vegetation. You can own animals, he owns the animals. And because he owns it, that gives him a certain moral prerogative to determine how it shall be used. When God says to Jews, don't eat pigs, you could translate it this way. They're my pigs, and I don't give you permission to eat them. Which means that if a Jew eats a pig, he is a thief. He's stealing someone else's property, capital S, capital E. Because since God owns it, it gives him a moral authority over it. And the moral authority means that when he says this is how it shall be used, then this is the way it has to be used morally. And if you violate that, 
Tell it some more. Yeah. Isn't it all about death? Death of life? Cain and Abel? Okay. It's a, it's a very interesting, okay, it's a very interesting observation. In a certain sense, in a certain sense, every transgression involves theft. I think that's right. I, but I, it's a quite deep point, and I'm not going to go into detail, but it's a quite deep observation that every, so there's a grow on it when he talks about Din Becheshbon, every, every transgression involves theft. I think that's quite right. That's a, that's a very deep observation. I'm, I'm not going to use it now, but I, I thank you for the observation. It's quite correct. Okay, so now... <coughs> What we see is that even though I have the independent ability to judge what is right and wrong, I can't ignore Torah. I can't ignore Akkadosh Baruch Hu because some of the principles I believe in, some of the principles I know that are right or wrong independently, imply that Akkadosh Baruch Hu has great authority and that when he exercises that authority, those exercises become morally binding upon him. So I can't ignore it. That's the answer to the first question that we raised. Now, what about using this independent moral authority to judge God and to judge Torah and perhaps even theoretically to say that a mitzvah would be wrong or what a Baruch who says or does is wrong. I'm glad you're all sitting down. I think this is right. I think this is right. It is theoretically possible. Theoretically. It's not just illogical. It won't ever apply in practice, but it's theoretically possible. Let me start with the positive side, with a, with a short observation. There's a pasuk that we all know. Tamu uru kitov Hashem. Taste and see that God is good. What does that mean? Taste and see sounds like some kind of investigation. Some kind of observation or experience or analysis should lead me to this conclusion. That means it can't be by definition. No one would say, taste and see that three is bigger than two. Three is bigger than two is just obvious. It doesn't require any tasting or seeing. Taste and see that God is good means we have a concept of good and we can look at what God does, and we can look at His purposes, and we can see, when we analyze them, that indeed they are good. They might not have been good, but in fact they are good. Which raises the possibility that it would be wrong, and then, when you do the investigation correctly, you'll see that it isn't wrong. It's right. Let's think about the problem of evil. The problem, not the solution. We know how to work the solution. But let's think about the problem. Before you jump to the solution, let's meditate on the problem. What is the problem? This person is suffering. If we think the person is innocent and the suffering serves no good, then the person ought not suffer. It's wrong that the person suffer. The problem is, God is running the world. God is omniscient and he's omnipotent. He knows what's going on and he has the power to change it. Why isn't he changing it? If the person is innocent and the suffering serves no good purpose, then he ought to be changing it. Which means, listen carefully, if the person is innocent and if it serves no good purpose, then God is doing wrong. That's the problem. The solution, of course, is that premise is not correct. Either the person is not innocent or the suffering serves some good purpose. But don't worry about jumping to the solution which denies the premises. Consider the, our, the problem. The problem is a transition from two premises to a conclusion. If the person is innocent and the suffering serves no purpose, then the person should not be suffering. And if the person is suffering and God is running the world, then God is doing... <coughs> excuse me. And God is doing wrong. That's the problem. No one in the entire literature on the problem of evil that I have seen, I haven't seen everything, obviously, but I've seen quite a bit of it, no one says, the whole thing's just a mistake. It's just a mistake in logic. If God's doing it, it's right by definition. Of course it's right. It can't be wrong. What do you mean it's wrong? It can't be wrong under any conditions. He's innocent. It doesn't have any purpose. It's purely vicious. But it's right because God is doing it. No one says that. No one says that. What they say is, either the person is, is guilty, 
or the suffering serves some good purpose. No one says, even if the person were innocent and it served no purpose, it would be right because God did it. Nobody says that. Because there's a limit to the moral authority that is delivered to God by these independent principles. I pointed out over and over again, I have five tapes here to prove me right, that gratitude has a limit. If my Savior tells me to jump off the building, I don't have to do that. There's a limit to the, the debt of gratitude. There's a limit to the, to the authority of the owner. The owner of a dog can take him with him from place to place, can cut his hair, can choose his food, but the owner of a dog may not morally torture the dog to death. That he cannot do. He say, I'm, I own it, I can do as I please with it. No, that you cannot do. So the moral authority that these principles deliver is limited. That's why there's a problem of evil. There's a problem of evil because the moral authority is limited. If the moral authority were unlimited, there couldn't be a problem of evil. What do you mean? He's within his rights to do anything. It's infinite moral authority, so nothing could be wrong. We don't say that. We say that if the person is innocent and the suffering doesn't serve any good purpose, then it's wrong. That means the moral authority that is delivered by these principles is limited, and that's why there's a problem of evil. So, indeed, the second question is, is uh, on target. You can use these independent moral principles to set limits to what God can do. When we say God is good, that's not empty. God is good means God does things that are good and not things that are bad. And if he did the things that are bad, then they would be bad and he would be bad. But he doesn't do those. That's not what he is. He's good. We're not excluding an impossibility. We're excluding something that's a possibility but is, in fact, incorrect. Now, what should we say about conscience? How does the idea of conscience fit into this picture? We don't really owe anything here. Conscience is not a Jewish term. I don't know that there's even a word for conscience in classical Hebrew. In modern Hebrew, they use the word matzpum. Anyone know what matzpum means? It means hidden. Tzafum means hidden. Matzpum means the thing that's hidden. That's not very descriptive. That's not very specific. There are lots and lots of things that are hidden. They don't have a word for it, so they made up a word. There's no word in Hebrew for the, for the idea. But if you want to use it, if you want to make contact with that concept from our tradition, I would say the ability to know what is right and what is wrong independently, originally, could be called one's conscience. But in so saying, we have to recognize that conscience in this respect has two very strong limitations. I will describe them to you and then I will stop to take questions. Because as usual... In the JLE, we're about 20 minutes behind schedule. Number one. All we have taken credit for is knowing certain basic moral principles. That does not mean that we have the ability to know what is right or wrong in a concrete situation. Because what is right or wrong in a concrete situation, as I said in the last hour, depends upon two things. It depends upon your moral principles and it depends upon the facts of the case. And very often, very often, the rightness or wrongness of the situation turns crucially on the facts of the case and we have no intuition that guarantees we have that right. A person will think, what shall I do about the conflict between my parents and my wife goes out to a rock and meditates and says, I feel in the pit of my stomach that this is right, has done something quite, quite irresponsible. Because in a conflict between your parents and your wife, if you're, if you're the husband, there's an enormous amount of psychological reality that you may not be appreciating. You can't discover that meditating in the forest. You need considerable insight into the psychodynamics of the situation. Here, appealing to your conscience is simply irrelevant. Only in the rare case, when it's a question of principle, and that's going to be rare because the principles are simple, clear, and they're open and obvious to everyone. This doesn't need meditation in the forest. So, the idea of consulting your conscience to discover 
the right moral decision in a complex situation is really incompetent. It's incompetent because what makes the situation difficult is something which your conscience is not qualified to settle. One, one reason is because of the facts of the matter, which as I told you are crucial, and your conscience is not qualified to settle that. And the other is, which I also mentioned in the last hour, um, the other is this, that when you have a judgment of morality that depends upon only one moral consideration, there it's open, it's obvious, and everyone will agree, and it doesn't need meditation. I have two actions, A or B, and A will produce more happiness for everyone than B will. Not playing off one's... It's not utilitarianism. Utilitarianism will say sacrifice his happiness or somebody else's greater happiness. No, everybody, everybody gets an increase in happiness. If there are no other moral considerations, then of course that's the right thing to do. There's no discussion of that. No one will deny that. Or keeping a promise. If keeping the promise has no cost, no cost in time and effort and money and energy and concern, it's trivial. Then of course you should keep the promise. There's no question about that. When do we have difficulties of moral principle? When we have conflicts between moral principles. Taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. In the United States, we had uh, an agony for decades over in legislating integration. But by law, public services, is it, I should say public services, services to the public had to be open to all people equally. <clears throat> and the owner said, sorry, it's my restaurant. I built it. I own it. I operate it. I have to carry insurance on it. How can you tell me who to serve? Why can't I serve the people that I please to serve? <clears throat> and the counter-argument was, your freedom is not worth as much as the social benefit of integration. So we're going to override your freedom, which is indeed one, a moral concern, but it's less valuable than the moral concern for the society's benefit. And here, reasonable people could disagree. Everyone agrees freedom is a moral concern. Everyone agrees that social benefit is a moral concern. And it's a question of how to resolve the clash. And some people said one way, and some people said the other way. Here, meditating in the forest isn't going to do it, because no one says that we have a faculty that's qualified to answer questions like this. The only thing the Torah gives us is that the basic, one-dimensional moral propositions are something that we can know on the basis of that faculty that God created within us. And that's enough to deliver authority to God and make the moral demands of the, of the Torah, the, the Torah's demands, uh, give them a moral basis. But beyond that, we don't have it. So the idea of using your conscience to settle difficult moral questions is something that our view of this faculty would not support. And there's plenty of reason not to support it in general, even without our view. Philosophically, it's not really supportable. But our view would not support that. It just serves the purpose of giving moral status to the, command, the, the mitzvahs of the Torah. Questions up to here. <coughs> you know, uh, you said something about um, someone saved your life and you have to object to it. So when it comes to honoring parents, there's actually a number which says you don't spend your own money honoring, honoring your parents. If you were to say, I have a debt, which depends upon what they have given to me, so they're giving you life, you generally actually should use all your money on your parents. So you're saying that the Torah gives us a halacha which, which goes against what's morally correct. Okay, there are two things to be said here. First of all, you're quoting a, a one halacha and you're just not big, uh, giving uh, um, um, expression to a, to a second independent halacha. The halacha you're talking about is honoring your parents. That includes a case where they didn't do anything good for you. Where they abandoned you at birth. And you discover who your biological parents are, the mitzvah of kibbutz the aim applies. So there's nothing to do with gratitude. If in addition to that they did good to you, then out of gratitude you may owe it to them. That's a separate chiyuv. It's a separate chiyuv. And if your parents need money, then the mitzvah of tzedakah says you have to give it to them first. So it's simply not true that you... That you the question is, because they birthed you, what do you owe them? And the Torah says you owe them service, but not that you should have to pay the money for the service. That has nothing to do with gra- debt of gratitude. Yeah. You said that a person could discern uh, the, the one more choice in a one-dimensional 
Yeah. Well, let's see. The, the case that I use, be, uh, to, uh, I've des- it's designed, and I didn't design it, it's used quite widely, is uh, torturing small children for fun is wrong. And you can argue what's the definition of fun? Well, okay, uh, let, me, let me, I mean, this is a, this is a very important philosophical point. Let's, let's talk a little bit short, short about, about definition. Um, how do we define words when we're worried about definitions and we search for definitions and we debate definitions? How do we do that? We do that on the basis that we're already using the word and we already have a considerable common understanding of the word. Right? Uh, how should we define good? Should we define good as petunias? As hopscotch? Should we define good as the constellation Virgo? I mean, those aren't candidates. Why not? Because we know what we mean by good Generally, we have a lot of usage of it in common. We have many cases upon which we agree. And then we have cases where we're in doubt, in cases where we disagree, where we ourselves can't understand what the truth is. We're trading on common usage when we try to define the term. So now, the demand for a definition is necessary and useful when the term has been used outside the agreed-upon area. When you use the term within the agreed-upon area, one doesn't need a definition. Indeed, the agreed-upon area is what you would use to adjudicate proposed definitions. Now, when I say for fun, the words for fun there are designed to say there are no other competing moral considerations. That's why I say for fun. Fun is not a competing moral consideration. Whatever you define fun to be, right, the usage of it in, is enough in common that whatever fun is going to be, it's not going to be something that you have a moral obligation to do. And that's all I need from, uh, from my example. Yeah. think the last half of the question is really relevant, but uh, I want you to tell you what Rav Dester says. One of the rational mitzvahs, a mishpat, one that a person should be able to know from himself is, uh, is binding, is the prohibition against stealing. A person should appreciate it. It's somebody else's property. You shouldn't take it, right? Rav Dester says, imagine a person who grows up in a society, the whole society believes in stealing. They all believe that it's right, and they teach their children that it's right. And he has no access to a competing opinion. Says Rav Dessler, he's not responsible for stealing. He's not responsible for stealing. You can't hold him responsible. Because his whole society taught him that stealing is permissible. It means that an idea which the mind can appreciate, the mind can become corrupted so that it can't appreciate it. An idea that's logical, your logic can become corrupted by your society. So indeed, even something that is clear to anyone with a healthy mind, a person could be non-responsible for that failure because he didn't have the opportunity to develop and exercise a healthy mind. Yes? No, no, no. Here I'm suggesting what I said a few moments ago. Thank you. <laughs> it wasn't filled last, last time I looked. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm suggesting what I said a few moments ago, that a judgment of morality in a concrete case depends both on your moral principles and your conception of the facts. I think everyone will agree that if the creator of the universe says to do something, that is a very strong factor in making it right. Our disagreement with them is not, even though God told you you shouldn't do it, our disagreement with them is, God didn't tell you to do it. How do you know, and how do they know? It doesn't make any difference. The point of principle here is, we're not disagreeing about morality, we're disagreeing about facts. 
That's our discussion tonight, right? How do you know is a separate issue? But the disagreement is not about moral principles. It's not moral relativism. It's not that they have different moral principles from we. We agree on all the moral principles. We disagree on the facts. But how do you find the facts? That's not relevant to our issue, right? Our issue is, is this a case of moral disagreement or isn't it? And I'm pointing out that it's not the case of moral disagreement. You raised it as a case of morality being empirical. I'm pointing out that that's simply not true. In this case, we agree on the moral principles. We just disagree on the facts. A case which is relevant, which I mentioned in the previous hour, and I then came out in discussion, which I, I didn't say, which is, is worth saying, uh, does the practice of the Nazis indicate different morals, different moral principles? The answer is No. In fact, the practice of the Nazis indicates identical moral principles. And here's the proof of it. They had to propagandize the world that Jews are evil. Why did they need the propaganda that Jews are evil? Why didn't they say, Jews are wonderful, nice, productive, clean citizens? We kill them anyway, because we have a different morality. We kill nice people. Right? You kill vicious people, we kill nice people. We just have a different morality. They didn't do that. They had to brand us as evil in order to motivate killing Jews using the old moral principles. Americans wiped out the Native Americans almost to the last. How did they do it? Because they taught that redskins mean you're not human. Oh, well, they're not human. We can kill them. Everybody agrees you can't kill a human being. There's no difference in morality there. You just have to define who a human being is. If you define them as non-human, then you can kill them without fear of violating the old morals. This is an indication of the fact that we're sharing moral principles. We're not differing in moral principles. What we differ in is, differ in is the facts. Right? That means that morality is far more universal than people appreciate. Yeah? Just going back to what you said about um, being brought up around stealing. If you're brought up in an environment where, you, where everything's all right to steal, and then one day you come over to someone and you ask for their money off them, surely from their reaction you're going to know that that's wrong. Uh, well, that's an interesting observation. Um, let's take races. What's the reaction of the person who loses the race? Upset. He's very upset. Does that mean it's wrong to win races? No. no. So from the fact that he's upset may just mean... <laughs> I got him. <laughs> he doesn't like losing his money. I've won the competition. I'm stronger and I got it. And so it doesn't, I don't think you can infer from the fact that he's upset that it's wrong to do what I'm doing. But it, when, when being mugged, it's not really upset. It's more scared, isn't it? Well, he may or may not be scared. But the person may feel that if he loses the race, then he won't get the job. He won't get the contract. He won't be awarded a place on the team. He could be scared also. Still won't mean that, he, that he's, I'm going to recognize from his reaction that what I'm doing is wrong. But in a race, you come together to do that. You're, you're in a race to compete. There's obviously there's a winner and there's a loser. With being mugged on the street, you're not exactly going to know. Now, we said robbery, not being mugged. That's a different crime. That's a different crime. But I think that this, these people say all of society is that kind of competition. Society means everyone is stealing from everyone, and the stronger can steal more, and the weaker so they steal less. You live in a city, you live in a society, you should know that the basis of the society is stealing. My wife had a book called A Professional Thief. This was in a, long, a, a major interview with a fellow who's in prison. <laughs> and he said, everybody steals. White-collar workers make illicit telephone calls from their jobs, and they uh, use a company charge card for that. Taxi drivers don't turn on the meters. Okay, in this country they do turn on the meters, but in other countries they don't turn on the meters. And the blue-collar workers steal rubber bands. and You know, everybody's stealing. I, at least, he said, don't lie about it. I'm willing to admit that everybody's stealing, and I'm one of them. You steal and you're hypocrites. You claim that you're honest. Everybody's stealing, so why shouldn't I steal? I have heard this argument in semi-serious tones about income tax. One person told me, if you pay your full taxes, you're paying more than you owe. Why? Because the government knows that everybody's cheating on their tax. So they raise the tax to cover the deficit of cheating. So if you pay the whole thing, you're paying more than your fair share. That was clever. <laughs> it's spurious, but it's clever. Right? So now... Uh, <clears throat> 
that's not a way to, to justify, you know, one's uh, moral shortcomings. Anyway, we're all together? Okay, um, let me just uh, give you one final illustration of the short weakness of conscience and then, uh, and then we'll be finished. There are those who think of the conscience as their moral guide. And, of course, what your conscience tells you is what you should do. What happens in a case where conscience, two people's consciences conflict? Now, of course, if A's conscience says to A that A should do something, and B's conscience says to B that B should do something else, that's not a conflict. The situations may very well be different. But let's bring them into direct conflict. A and B are partners in a business. And the question is what the business shall do. And A's conscience says that A and B should do something. And B's conscience says that A and B should do something else. Not only can that happen, but it does happen. What then happens to conscience? If you think of conscience as your moral guide and it's somehow guaranteed to be correct, else why would you be told to follow your conscience if it's not necessarily morally correct. Then in cases like this, they can't both be correct. They have opposite judgments about the very same proposition. That's an indication that conscience doesn't work the way uh, people conceive of it. And it certainly can't say that your uh, guide in life can be your conscience. In our case, since so much of practical morality is going to be determined by the Torah... The fact that in the pit of my stomach I think I ought to do this in this concrete situation can be doubly faulted. Number one, I don't know the relevant facts about the situation. And number two, if it's a morally complex situation, my balancing of the relative, the, the relative claims of the different moral considerations may be, in fact, inaccurate. So the Torah's endorsement of a faculty that gives us independent understanding of moral principles has only the effects that I described and no more. Okay. Quick question. You said earlier that um, you can only use your conscience.